Welcome to Catholic Town, sponsored by the National Shrine Grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes and Mount St. Mary's University. Catholic Town aims to highlight people, places, and movements that are spreading the kingdom of God in the historic town of Emmitsburg, Maryland, and beyond. Join us as we sit down with Catholic figures of all types, hear their stories, and get to the heart of what drives them. Hey everybody, welcome back to Catholic Town, the podcast where we talk about Catholic things and also we talk about a town. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Professor Steve McGinley. He is a philosophy professor uh, here at Mount St. Mary's. Um, I had the pleasure of taking a class with him two semesters ago, uh, Intro Philosophy. That was um, an amazing experience. That's what made me, uh, I got to know him a little bit there. So we wanted to have him on the show. Eventually, we want to talk about a farm that he started in town, but I just want to get a little bit of background on you, Steve. So you went to the Mount as an undergraduate, am I right? Indeed. Uh, I was a student here from 2006 to 2010. Um, I was, if my memory is correct, the 11th from my family to have come here, uh, including by marriage, now 13 have come and gone uh, so yeah, the mound is close to our hearts, and we are happy to keep sending kids here when they come of age. And um, so you're a philosophy professor here now. When you started out at the mount, was that the your what you wanted to do? Did you know that from the beginning, like freshman year, were you like set on philosophy, or did you get introduced to philosophy when you got to the mount? Or those are great questions. Uh, no, to all of those. Okay. Um, when I came to the Mount, I was um, thinking of the priesthood um, and um, yeah, to spare some details, essentially over my time at the Mount through uh, prayer and suffering, I realized my vocation wasn't to the priesthood, but to the married state. And uh, my major, while well, in undergraduate, was in economics, precisely because economics presupposes uh, uh, deeply, well, it presupposes an anthropology, a vision of the human person that, as a discipline um, in general, is an inadequate anthropological vision. So man is a utility-maximizing animal. By animal, they mean cart in a sort of Cartesian sense, which is to say a machine. Um, so in terms of man's embodiedness, um, I took essentially economics because John Larravee said I should because I'm good at it, uh, yeah. and I was, at least so they said. Um, and then, but really, at what I realized was what I'm most interested in is um, sort of the question of what it means to be human and how... Uh, our answer to the question of what it means to be human shapes the way in which we um, relate to the world and uh, and act in the world. So did you come to that through, did you take a philosophy course that made you realize that? or So, yeah, right. Great question. So the Mount's core curriculum was my introduction to philosophy, properly speaking. Uh, and uh, I had... Um, uh, some great teachers, and some of whom are still here. Um, and then I 
I, one of the sort of reasons I majored in economics was because it required the least number of credit hours to oh, graduate okay. so that I could take as many other courses as seemed interesting. Um, so I took a lot of philosophy courses while here and also took a lot of uh, like a course history of the family and some other courses that just were striked my fancy. Okay, gotcha. So you, you mentioned earlier when we were talking before the podcast that you started a garden while you were in college. Was that right? Yeah. So during my time here, um, I took philosophy and theology courses in addition to the normal ones required for the core. And I realized that um, as, and as I was growing in my prayer life, I realized that I have no practical experience of what Christ is talking about in almost any of his parables. Oh. And that really frustrated me. I don't know. in the field. Yep. All of the agricultural parables are lost. First the ear. Mm -hmm. What's first? The the wheat and then the ear or the bud? Uh, Yeah. So you, I mean, you first have the germinate, right? So you have the stalk and Mm -hmm. then the bud and then the ear and then, or the flowers and then you have the the fruit, which is a a wheat berry. Um, So you started this farm to key into yeah the, so i started parables. a garden i like tomatoes and i like broccoli <laughs> so i started a garden in my parents house uh i can't grow I, like growing grapes takes years but i wanted to learn about the vine dresser in particular and is that a parable mm-hmm. which one is that john 14 right you are the vine oh we are the branches we are, we are the branches right? okay so um, did, did those come more alive to you as you oh as yeah you because you have to, to prune a tomato vine if you really like at a at a home gardener scale, you're pruning tomato vines to make it uh, bear more fruit and bear fruit that is bigger. So you're cutting off parts of the plant so that the, mm-hmm. the energy is focused into. Uh, yeah, you're snipping at the crotch. So you have the main trunk and oh. then the the, the the branches. Right. Uh, Doesn't sound fun. Yeah, and then there's a little um, new growth that comes in that crotch between the main stem and the leaf branch, and you're plucking that. But you have to differentiate that from the fruit bud um anyway the long and short of it is i started this little garden uh um and uh i did not know at the time but um i planted tomato and broccoli right next to each other and they were all growing well i checked on them in the evening and by the next morning the broccoli was totally eaten by worms so everything oh. looked great the night before. In the morning, I wake up; it's it's just gone. Um, Can you not plant things? Certain so things next to each correct. other. Correct. Certain things are companion plants, uh. Uh, and certain things are enemies. <laughs> um, and so then that sort of I didn't realize at the time, but basically what that says something about the order of relation and that things right things have a nature, mm-hmm. but they also exist in um, certain orders of relation that we need to respect, we need to pay attention to, Mm. if we want to bring about their flourishing. Um, Kind of respect the laws that created them. Precisely. Their their inborn laws. Right. So I started this garden, this was my, I don't remember what year, but probably junior year, maybe senior year. And... um, Uh, then I applied for graduate school, um, at a couple schools, but I ended up going to the John Paul II Institute for studies on marriage and family 
at Catholic University of America. Um, so did you study marriage and family? Is that- I did. So the way that John Paul II Institute, the way that I generally word it for people is, in studying marriage and family, you have to know both the church's teaching on creation and redemption and the relation between the two, because marriage is the sacrament both in the order of creation and in the, or it's the sort of, uh, it's an institution in the order of creation that gets taken up into the sacramental order of grace by Christ. And so you have to know both grace and nature and the right relation between the two. Central to that, then, is a robust understanding of creation and the integrity of creation. Well, that just made me want to be a farmer all the more. Um, uh. It also gave me it, it, the Mount's core curriculum uh, and my philosophy classes that I took here really prepared me for graduate school at the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family. Um, so much, yeah, I was, I was exceedingly well prepared for that and... Um, during my second year there, um, so my, my wife and I got married after I graduated uh, and during my first semester in graduate school. And then during my second um, year, so my third semester, I was getting sick on and off and it ended up I had cancer. Um, what, what kind of cancer did so you get? It was get? diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which... Wow, okay. um, there's a lot of words. I don't quite, it's a disorder of the B cell. That's it's, a part of your body. Yeah. Uh, so, well, the, yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm not a scientist, but okay. It is not an organ though. Yeah. It's not an organ. No, it's in the bloodstream. Oh, it's like part of the, yeah. part of the blood. Yeah. So it, it, it particularly affects in the lymphatic system. Cause my understanding is the lymph nodes clean the blood. Again, I'm not a scientist, Sure, but uh, so where we found the um, masses uh, were in the lymph nodes surrounding the heart. And then three weeks later, it had spread up to under uh, in the lymph node under the armpit. Were you getting like symptoms? Were you feeling sick? Yeah. So I had unexplainably high fevers oh. off and on like okay. 103 oh. to 104 range, which is really suddenly normally high for an adult. Yeah. Um, so that was while you were in graduate school. This was school. while I was in graduate school, um, which was beautiful. Uh, again, the, the JP2 Institute is it, like that time of my wife and my life. It was beautiful. There was suffering, but obviously cancer. Um, but it was really um, the community at the JP2 Institute is amazing. Yeah. Um, they really live out what it is that they are trying to share with students, this vision of the human person this adequate anthropology that John Paul II um, tried to articulate for the church. That's kind of uh, interesting. You're trying to learn about nature and, and having it flourish and cancer hops on and yes. a bit of an antagonist for you during that time. Indeed. A little bit of an inverted right. taking away. Kind of like the plants uh, in school <laughs> right. getting eaten away by some... <laughs> yes. So what ended up happening was I realized um, it was at the same time that I was diagnosed with cancer that we found out on our lady of Guadalupe's feast day that Raphael, that we were expecting our first child. Okay. And the due date for him was the queenship of Mary. So we knew we were in good hands. Like there was no question about that. Um, uh, but once Raphael was born and I had, I finished chemotherapy, graduated from the John Paul II Institute, 
and um, in the same week in, in May and um, and then needed to lose chemo weight. I gained a lot. Um, I was 280 some pounds, which is from chemo, from chemo, from steroids. And I thought you lost weight from chemo. Yeah. Not this guy, this guy, the only way that I didn't get nauseous was by eating. And so I ate. ate. Okay. Gotcha. (laughs) The medicine didn't help. So, Mm. um, also steroid weight, like you're holding fluid you're taking steroids to kill, to, to suppress whatever it does. I don't know. Gotcha. Um, and so I'm just, I was so eventually you, you beat the cancer. Yeah. So by the end of when Raphael was born, I was 190 pounds. Okay. So I had dropped all that weight. Um, but what we ended up doing once a friend of ours gave us a book called nourishing traditions by Sally Fallon Morell. Um, which was a real, so in undergraduate, I had a paradigm shift by reading John Paul II's Theology of the Body, the actual text, not some, uh, not in Polish or is Italian. It, but is that kind of like an underpinning text of the JP2 Institute? Yes. Okay. Um, that's a big, that's a big one. Yes. I hear that's the ticking time bomb of our, of our times. That's yes. It's, it's, it's coming. Yeah. So I read it over Lent. It's perfect to read over Lent. If you read three audiences a day, you'll have the whole thing done in Lent. Wow. Um, that being said, uh, that was a paradigm shift for me in terms of how I understood and thought about what it meant to be a human person, male and female. And then I realized with Sally Fallon Morell's work, uh, nourishing traditions and through Wendell Berry's my introduction to Wendell Berry in graduate school and some other key thinkers um, that um, like Leon Cass and the hungry soul that the human act of eating um, says something about how we uh both understand ourselves and the world and that what it is that we are eating, um, if not raised according to its nature or if not treated sort of post-harvest handling according to what it is, what its nature is, can really ends up becoming disastrous for the human person. It's, so It's making me think of... Uh that that phrase you are what you eat yes um i've been reading um saint paul um i think it's in philippians but talking about taking in what is lovely what is true what is good and um even taking that to eating so i'm interested to hear eventually like let's take a break um but we're going to talk about you coming back to the mount after your time um at the jp2 institute and starting a farm and where this all really starts to uh, develop How do you want to be remembered? Please consider including Mount St. Mary's in your will or state plan. Remembering the Mount in your plan is easy, qualifies you for membership in our 1808 Society, and will provide opportunities for future students to call the Mount their home. For more information, visit our website at msmary.edu. Hey guys, welcome back. This is Peter Ferguson. I'm sitting with uh, Professor um, uh, McGinley here talking about 
his farm that he started in the town of Emmitsburg. Uh, he's a philosophy professor here. Um, so can we just dive into a little bit about you coming back and starting a farm? How did that develop? Yeah, great question. So once I finished graduate school, I um, came back to the Mount to talk to Dr. Hochschild, who at the time was um, Dean of the College of Liberal Arts, and posed the idea to him that the Mount should start um, a Catholic agriculture program mm-hmm. um, that both teaches the sort of um, the, the, the theory, right? It, it would be an interdisciplinary sort of program that would have um, all of the science, but also the philosophy and the theology and uh, the practical skills necessary mm-hmm. in order to, to farm in an, in an ordered way. Um, prudently, uh, Josh said, now's not the right time. Mm. So then I went and was a youth minister for three years. And during that time I volunteered at, uh, organic farm, Claggett farm in upper Marlboro. Um, Carrie Vaughn was gracious to let me work with her and I learned a lot and I kept, uh, reading and growing and my wife and I, our garden, Basically, in our suburban lot became huge, mm-hmm. so much so that our neighbor called the city on us and said, <laughs> I think they're growing something illegal. And uh, oh. we weren't. I guess um, that's a strange it was just compliment. 12, yeah. yeah, it was just 12 foot tall corn that she <laughs> thought was something else. Um, so that was exciting. Uh, our, our sort of less than a quarter acre suburban plot was fruitful enough that we were able to buy minimal vegetables. Um, but this desire for farming never went away. And so I thought, well, I'll work at this farm one day a week while I'm a youth minister to hope that this desire goes away because mm-hmm. it's kind of annoying. Yeah. Like youth ministry is difficult in its own right. Mm-hmm. Um, but farming is, is even more difficult and, um, is entrepreneurial, which means I could fail. Right. You feel like it's also sort of countercultural to farm? Yeah, in a certain sense, yeah, right? I mean, I have a graduate degree, I have a uh, a master's degree, and I'm going to go farm? Like, right. what? <laughs> uh, so um, when I left the Mount, I had wanted to get a PhD and come back and teach here because right. I love the school. Mm-hmm. Since I didn't get the PhD, I thought the Lord just closed that door. Okay, we won't bother. Um but then once it got to a point while well, as a youth minister that Casey May and I decided, you know, we need to, we need to just go farm because we're not getting any younger mm-hmm. and, um, Let's go for it, get some land. Yeah. We just need to try it. So we sold everything in Bowie and left and, um, and lived with my parents for about what ended up being a year, mm-hmm. um, while we looked for land and we, Part of the point of the farm, farming is really challenging in terms of time commitments. You have to be available at strange hours. <laughs> um, so we needed, we knew that we needed to be, and the, the whole point of moving closer was moving closer to our parents. So we knew that we wanted to be nowhere further than like Hancock, Maryland, west to, to Westminster, to the east. Mm-hmm. My parents are from Hagerstown. Casey Mays are from Westminster. And so um, we sort of scoured 
the the Pennsylvania, Maryland, uh, Virginia market mm-hmm. just looking for anything. Um, and after a year, which, and the day I left Bowie, Maryland, where I was at Sacred Heart, uh, a, a, another graduate of the Mount, John Gibbons, called me and said the Mount wanted me to teach uh, at the Frederick campus, but I said no, because who wants to teach four hours once a week? And I said, <laughs> that sounds perfect for a farmer. There it would go. be supplemental income. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, it all of the time is in the dark, right? So, so I sent in my CV to the chair, and they accepted me uh, to teach that class, and I loved it. And I wasn't expecting to love it well, in the way that I loved it. I thought, oh, no. Now what do I do? You're hooked. Right? Um, so, so I had those two classes. And then um, in this is the fall of 2016. In the spring of 2016, they didn't need me. And then in the fall of 2017, I taught two symposium courses. Well, at the time in the winter of fall 2016, we decided we have exhausted the normal market. Um, so we're going to write letters to people. So we wrote a letter. The first letter we wrote was to the Daughters of Charity in Emmitsburg because we loved Emmitsburg. We know the community. It's right in between our two parents. A letter asking? A letter asking for four things. There were four propositions that I made. Okay. One was to um, to buy the land which the former Seton Thrift Store was on, which is right across from the Basilica. Mm-hmm. The second was to buy a portion of the land from them. The third was to uh, uh, buy or rent some portion and buy, buy a portion and rent the rest or do, figure something out. And the fourth was to be their farmer. So they have a farm in, I think, Missouri... The daughters of charity, uh, the daughters have, a of charity have a farm in Missouri that it's the sisters out there work with. Okay. Um, I thought, and look, I thought this is like, this is going to go nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, needless to say, in two weeks, I got a phone call uh, from the gentleman who's in charge of their facilities and grounds. And he said, the daughters cannot sell you that. Because you can't afford it. I said, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I can't. But they have three other parcels that they want you to look at. I said, okay, mm. great. So I looked at them. We chose the best one. Uh, it had the best soil. And um, uh, the farm is a cruciform farm. So it's a triangular parcel with a cross in the middle. And the, sh- uh, the horizontal beam of the cross is a stream called St. Mary Run, which is the grotto water. Wow. It starts at the grotto and goes down under the mount, over under cross 15, and then flows east to Tom's Creek, into the Monocacy, I think. So we're connected. Indeed. And that was really, for us, like, look, I'm a theologian by training. Mm-hmm. Um, those sorts of signs yeah. only make yeah. me go, oh, the Lord is good. Yeah. Right? That's, good. That's good water. We have people yeah. coming from all over the place to exactly. get water like that. Exactly. You're in good hands. Um, and that the, the property is cruciform, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. that this, right, from, from uh, what, is, what is the Easter, Holy Saturday, um, living water is flowing from 
the east side of the temple, right? Yeah. Uh, there's wow. this eastward flowing water. You, f- you fell on, on a very symbolic farm. Exactly. So it really, it gave us consolation and the daughters worked with us. Um, they're amazing. Um, and they loved our vision. So I explained in our letter what our vision is, um, which I'll get to in a second. But they wanted to support us. Um, so they wanted us to buy it from them. And we bought it on the Feast of St. Dominic, August 2017, which I think is August 10th. But whatever it was, it was mm-hmm. the Feast of St. Dominic. And it was the year that my son's godfather was ordained a Dominican priest. So we had him come and bless the farm. Uh, nice. Uh, on my birthday that year. Um, and then uh, when I was, so that was August I started teaching at the Mount then to symposium courses and immediately I tied the farm in with the classroom. So I had freshmen come help in if they wanted. I invited them out. We did a farm tour. I explained sort of the principles behind it, how it relates to the core curriculum at the Mount, um, how our human practices um, uh embed our our way of understanding the world and God and man and it was it was good but um, uh, and it's grown since then um, have, have the students been receptive to learning about farming yeah so the the way that actually uh, will was um, in uh, well, Will's one was our tech guy for yeah. those Will's, podcast yeah. listeners. Will is sitting Will here. Is, Will is here. Um, Will the was computer. there. Uh, the first farm tour that I gave for the philosophy courses. Um, my sense is that uh, what the farm adds to the core curriculum is often thought of as uh, sort of esoteric or or irrelevant, mm-hmm. old. Um, not that useful, right? This applies it to something that you can touch and taste and feel and experience. Exactly. I mean, that really links up to uh, our last podcast with, with uh, professor John Mark Miravalli talking about beauty. Yes. um, That, that many times we can get so caught up in talking about truth and um, ideas that, you know, it becomes detached from, you know, incarnated forms. Yes. So this is, this is bringing it back, back to, you know, but it's hard because in the modern world, there there's so many uh, so many temptations to just you know be cerebral. Yes, and, you know, just be on your phone. I, I know you you've you've been pretty critical in the class that I took about uh, high cell phone use. Indeed, um, uh, <laughs> even if you're Instagramming photos of your farm. Yeah, we don't even have Instagram. <laughs> yeah, just. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, I am. Have you seen there be a, a barrier there? I mean, we, we've talked before about how um, this generation coming up, it, you know, you know, people call them digital natives, people that were born with right. the internet. So, um, and a struggle for the upcoming generation to, you know, there's there's billboards on highways that say unplug, you know, and there's yeah. all these these messages out there, you know, warning people of getting too um, yeah. sucked into that virtual space. So is it hard for you to pull these, these people out of uh, that realm and, and get their hands in the dirt, bring them back to earth? (laughs) Those are great questions. So um, part of the reason why, uh, 
The difficulty for pulling someone out of the abyss of their uh, less than one inch thick device <laughs> is precisely because we have evacuated the world of meaning. Our way of understanding the world is this sort of nihilistic, vacuous void that I am stuck in and that I may as well sort of um, numb the pain with this thing. Um, so, so the phone, in other phones words, are like a, like a drug. Uh, you could word it that way. Uh, if there's another colleague, yeah, yeah, there's another colleague at this school who makes precisely that argument that the phone is the new Soma from Brave New World. Um, I agree with him, but I'm not going to go into that. What I would say is the farm precisely offers students actual reasons why they should be unplugged, why they should get away from the world, because there is something to get away to. And I've heard that about addiction. So if someone needs to, with you know, detach from some addictive thing, they have those withdrawal symptoms and there's tips of, well, you need to fill that void with something that will cause you flourishing. You know, yeah. like I used to smoke a lot. I still smoke a little bit, but I'm trying to transition into skateboarding, which is like a childhood nice. memory. And, and I felt <laughs> when I do that, I am less prone to smoke because I feel athletic. I feel like I'm exercising my body. So you're trying to say, look, if you pull away from this, you're going to feel, you know, people talk about FOMO, fear of missing out. You know, you're feeling detached from um, uh, the digital realm, the social media. But you're saying, look, there is something really beautiful that you can that can take that space. Correct. The um, and it gets them outside of their own head. Right. Mm-hmm. When you have to take care of chickens or or weed a bed you're not thinking about, you're thinking about the task, right? You're not thinking about, you're not so self-conscious yourself. You're not thinking about what you're thinking about. Even you're just thinking about how do I weed this without killing the actual plant that I want to remain in this bed. And that helps your mental health. Correct. Yeah. It gets you outside of both yourself, um, and into a world that is uh, full of meaning precisely because it is God's creation and he doesn't create things in vacuo. So it leads um, to wonder. It leads to gratitude. Correct. And that's really important because I've noticed in myself and a lot of people around me, a lot of articles that that social media and these, these platforms are designed to get you addicted. They're designed, and I've noticed in myself, it makes you very self-conscious. I mean, people, people, you know, there's a, there's a graph, um, that, uh, sister Moncoy, she's a sister that works mm-hmm. with us up at the grotto. She showed me, um, a timeline, a chart of, um, uh, increasing rates in depression mm-hmm. and, oh. and it's, aligned with a graph that shows the iPhone release dates and they base it's basically the same graph. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but, but people are, people are comparing themselves to other people online. People are, you know, especially for young people that have all these social, um, they're trying to find out who they are within the social world. So they're, you know, deeply involved in Instagram and right. Facebook and all these, these platforms trying to understand what their relationships with, but, but it makes them very self-conscious and it makes them, and there's a huge danger there, but it's very inward looking. It makes you cave in on yourself. Right. So the other thing, so chickens are the answer is what you're saying. Yeah. At least in part. Um, so I think, um, 
implicit here, right, is um, insofar as these devices um, uh, assume, right, that I can construct my own identity, right, mm-hmm. that I am defining myself, at least insofar as other people know me, right, I am putting myself forward for the world and saying that this is who I really am. You're like constructing a self-image for others to to consume. The assumption there, it it seems to me, is um, uh, um, how can I say this? And yeah, in layman's terms. Yeah. Right. So. When we assume, if 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 all of reality is sort of self-constructed, that goodness is self-constructed, so that the world is sort of neutral or dumb stuff that only is good insofar as I manipulate it, well, that leads to me thinking of my own embodiedness in the same way and of my relationships in the same way, and which leads ultimately to my thinking of myself in that way. I can, but, but then it becomes this endless project of, I can never accept, accept myself as good as given. So being is not, you're constructing your own good. Precisely. You're the one giving goodness. So exactly. So being is no longer good as given, which is a rejection of the Thomistic sort of metaphysical being is good. So instead of good being, discovered it's designed exactly by the person exactly it's not discovered as something put there by god correct so there's not a sense of discovery of correct you being created by god You're right just which means yourself. really right if that's the case if being is designed by us or if goodness is designed by us that means it's not actually already there so it's which, shallow exactly and people must People know that it's shallow and, and they get so, self-deprecating because they see how shallow bingo. it is. It leads to what the father's, what, what is acedia, right? This sort of despair they about know. existence. Because it's so small. Because existence isn't good. And though the time, and going back to the chicken, those are the times that I really feel like I'm escaping that caving in despair is yes. when I get inserted in this story that's bigger than me. And the meaning becomes bigger. And yes. I, I say, wait, I am in a story that is much bigger than me. I'm part of it. Yes. But, and if we could, you know, that's such an important message for, 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 you know, everybody, but especially young, young people coming up now, because it's so easy to get indoctrinated and self-designing, you know, this relativistic culture, everyone's competing on designing their own truth, but we know that that God has a truth for us that he wants us to discover. God has a plan. So, uh, yeah, you have right. more to add to that. Yeah, exactly. So, and to see that, right, God's plan is for the entirety of the world, for the whole cosmos, right? And that I, as a member of that, and as a member of the cosmos, and as a member of the body of Christ, am working with Christ to bring about the restoration of all things in himself, Amen. Like that's what human action. I'm. I am incarnating, as it were, um, through my human action, God's love for the world. The, the the farmer and the philosopher both participate in God's love for the world. Is how I would. Insofar as right, the farmer's gaze is turned in a very real way to the world. 
Like, mm. I have chickens and sheep. I have to take care yeah, of. I have plants to something that I have to take care of. Yeah. Um, which the temptation there, right, is to get caught up in the world as sort of only the world. Mm. But if if John 3.16 has any gravitas, which it does have a lot. And what is that verse? Which is that God so loved the world, right? Hoi cosmoi, that he gave his only, only son, son, right? Yeah. If we take John seriously, that it's actually like his son is it is the world that Christ is saving all things, not just man, but all things. All of creation. How then, how do we participate in God's salvation of the world in Christ? How does the layman participate precisely by bringing back to the Father through his human action, through the bread and wine offered at the Mass, that's his function, right? That's my job, is to bring it to the church what God has provided in the order of creation so that he can bring it higher up or in C.S. Lewis's terms, right? Like further up and further in. So are you making, um, are you making bread? Are you getting wheat grown? Uh, there? My goal, one of my long-term goals. So there's a, there's a gentleman who's the working Genley on communion bread coming up. Yeah. There's a gentleman working on perennial wheat. Okay. Most wheat is an annual crop. Okay. Which means uh, several things, which we don't have to talk about now. But I'm interested in perennial agriculture, or at least, I mean, we, we raise annual crops, but we do it in such a way where we incorporate cover crops and um, livestock management, et cetera. But perennial wheat would be awesome. And it's... Um, Is it hard to grow? Where you... Where yeah. The land that you have, could you Great grow Great question. There? I am. I. It's on out. my to-do list to contact this gentleman who's who's piloting this, and see if he wants to have a test site in our clay soil. Nice. Um, well, let's talk about that a little bit more after our break. Very good. At Mount St. Mary's, the extraordinary experience we have here will create careers and lives that matter out there, because from the minute we arrive and for every moment that follows, we live significantly. Welcome back to the Catholic Town Podcast. We're sitting down with Professor uh, McGinley here, uh, talking about the farm that he started um, near um, Mount St. Mary's in an effort to um, help students come out of themselves and uh, discover God's creation as something that we can contribute to. So, we were talking about your farm and how, how the students are reacting to it. I have... Another question here. So philosophy led you to philosophy and theology led you to farming. What kind of philosophy is leading to the current uh, situation with food that we have with fast food um, with. uh, Yeah, right. These are great questions. So um, uh, let's see. So basically let me put it in this sense. Um, it was Aristotelian and Thomistic philosophy that led me to, to want to farm mm-hmm. because Aristotle affirms things have a nature of which we're not the author. And that if we want to, um, if we want to flourish, essentially, I mean, I'm sort of paraphrase, like these aren't quotes. This is my distillation. If we want to flourish, we need to work um, 
right? We have a nature mm-hmm. and uh, our flourishing is the sort of full flourishing of who and what we are. But the same holds for everything else, right? Other things have natures. And if we want, um, really, because man is a microcosm, right? In the, in the Greek sense, he's a little world. If, um, and he's a little world who literally takes in the entirety of the cosmos into himself, which is why omnivore is such a significant, philosophically significant um, reality. Omni. Omni. Omni means all. We eat everything. Um, wow. We take the whole world into ourselves, and the world, as it were, becomes personalized in us. Because we can take it because in. Because we can it's... take it in. And it becomes part of us wow. in a certain sense. So, But the way in which we do that, right, if, if we don't treat the thing according to its nature and bring it to its full flourishing. Corrupt it. If we corrupt it, then we're not it's not going to be good for us because it's not the fullness of the thing. Right. So literally, so case in point, right. Cows are the easiest sort of, uh, finger pointing. Okay. Good good illustration for it. Okay. Um, uh, a grain fed cows, a a, a cow is a, is a, is a ruminant. It's a large ruminant. It has a rumen, which is a several series, a series of chambers that ferments and digests grass and herbaceous plants, plant matter. When you feed a cow grain, the the rumen changes, the environment of the rumen changes, and it um, uh, it also alters, in changing the environment of the rumen, it alters the immune system of the cow in such a way that the cow is more prone to illness, which then we, so with the Industrial Revolution, we said, oh, well, we can get cows bigger, fatter, faster by feeding them grain. And then we realized, oh, wow, they're getting sick. So rather than having a, uh, right, the, the original problem was a changed conception in the nature of the cow. We're going to ignore the nature of the cow because we have a useful end that we want to expedite. Right? We want cows to be fatter faster. We're going to use it because of something we want from Precisely. it. Precisely. Like, like, yeah. Okay. We're going to reduce the animal to its usefulness rather than recognize its usefulness is part of a properly ordered cosmos. It's kind of like objectification. Exactly. Like, like yes. Skinny cow, I mean, like this is skinny cow. I mean, look at the skinny cow uh, advertisement. It is objectification of both cows and women. Wow. Like literally, it's yeah. a skinny cow that looks feminine. It's very creepy. You don't yeah. want a skinny cow in that sense. It looks unhealthy. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. The The point here is, right, so rather than changing our human action toward the cow and going and, and, and recognizing, wow, the cow is now sick because we are treating it in this way, let's go back to grass. Rather than doing that, we said, hey, let's give it antibiotics, right? This is brilliant. We come up with a technical solution to what's actually a philosophical, moral problem. Just, just put a Band-Aid on it. Right. And then what ends up happening, uh, you have the sort of, um, you have other problems ensue, right? The problems compound. Because the problem gets more complicated and more, Correct. And more layers needs of fake, m- fake, sol- precisely. fake solutions. Now, that being said also, though, something to note is that the fat content of the cow changes once you, a grain-fed cow's fat, omega-6 to omega-3 uh, fatty acid ratio is about 18 to 20 to one. 
the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of a grass-fed cow, only grass-fed, like herbaceous living plants, Mm -hmm. is about a three-to-one to to a two-to-one, which is almost what olive oil is. Wow. Which is remarkable. Yeah. Now, the saturated fat content is higher, but the sort of American hatred of saturated fats is an erroneous... It's based on erroneous science. There's a book called The Big Fat Surprise that is like the tour de force condemnation of the American hatred of fats, um, of healthy fats. So have we been, have we been doing these things to cows because of the industrial revolution and like a bigger need for more and more meat? Yeah. So, so the way that this works, um, (laughs) it, uh, so I would say, what the Enlightenment and Protestant Reformation brought about was a shift in our understanding of the world. Okay. Um, theologically, a rejection of the sacramentality of the world. Philosophically, a rejection of the world as uh, in the Aristotelian conception of having uh, of exist of having uh, creatures that are that have natures and that have sort of that are not mechanisms. Right, right. right. Um, The world becomes mechanistic. Our thinking about the world becomes one one with a sort of uh, technocratic, um, uh, mechanical way of thinking about reality. And it kind of sounds like that even stems from if you perceive yourself as something that can be designed. Correct. Not discovered, then it just follows that other things Actually, yes. can be designed and not yes. discovered. So if you can do what if you can do whatever you want with you, you know, modeling yourself like a piece of clay rather than watering right. yourself like a plant that has certain embedded needs. Right. Well that means everything else is clay. Right. So um historically we began with this thinking about non-human things because it's much more convenient, right? Mm -hmm. But because I would argue of the hierarchy of being, right, once we make the assumption that the the soil has no meaning except that which we give it, because man is Adam, he is of the soil. He is, as it were, the concrete personalization of the soil. Because that is true. Does Adam mean soil? It means ha'adamah, the drawn from the soil, yes. So there's a constitutive relation between man and the soil. How we see the soil necessarily leads to how we see ourselves and vice versa. Wow. So if we see the soil, if we see the soil and other living things, not as living things, but as sort of dumb stuff, this sort of Cartesian res extensa, these extended, mutable, flexible things... We will see our own embodiedness in the same way, which is exactly what Descartes does, right? We become the thinking thing in contradistinction to our embodiedness becomes this mutable, flexible, extended thing. Well, it took 400 years for us to get to the point where we are now in terms of playing out that logic. So this is just like a slow motion nuclear bomb of of that philosophy. I I mean, I think so. And so Um, your, your farm is... Um, an attempt to un- to help people unlearn that Correct. philosophy and and return to um, a philosophy that's correct. Yeah, an adequate understanding of the cosmos, right? Well, I'm not going to have a full understanding in this sort of godlike sense. What we want is adequacy. It needs to be robust enough that uh, uh, um, that it can 
um, both uh, in such a way that we can work to bring about the flourishing of other creatures and ourselves in communio, in, in communion, in, in right relation, so that we work both with the nature of things and the proper order of relation that brings them to their flourishing. That's beautiful. I mean, everybody wants harmony, and right. it, it, it makes sense that then we would need to rediscover that that sense of relationship between human person and the environment, which God created for that human person. Now we're, we're in a time where people are being born into a world that, that is so extensively designed differently than what God created. Especially I was, I lived in Baltimore for seven years and I would just look at these kids in the inner cities and my heart just went out to them when I would come back home I would try to describe this level of desolation um, that I, I thought these kids must be going through. And I was trying to explain it to my parents. We live out in an area where it's, it's beautiful. There's nature everywhere. And I told my parents, they can't see the stars. They, they live in an environment where they've never seen the stars because the pollution from the city rises right. up in the sky. It stays there permanently. And the lights from the buildings and the street lights illuminate the clouds. So it's like the smog. And yeah you never see the stars. So when I would come home, you know, on a semester off, I'd look up and see all these stars in the sky. I just start tearing up, realizing how much of a gift it is, but how important that what you're doing hope we got, we have to pray to God that this continues to grow because what, what we're dealing with now is, is massive amounts of, of the population being born into the materialized incarnation of distorted philosophies that they've memorized and, and, and can many times be indoctrinated into thinking this is normal. They need to be brought out of that and return to, I'm still guilty. I go to McDonald's way more than I should. Okay. Like I, I eat terribly a lot of the time. Like I'm still um, a victim to just living in the designed environment that's around us. But you're saying, look, if you want to discover God in, in a very fundamental sense of what he intended for creation, come with me to my farm and discover that, that fundamental. And it's like the parable come, come here to find out that original meaning, right? Right. So rediscovering that meaning is going to be very hard for many people because we've been so embedded in a lie in many ways. I'm not, I'm not saying the whole world is a terrible place. I'm just saying that in many ways, how the world is now has deceived a lot of us into thinking this is how it is. And this is a journey back to the heart, back to the heart of God. And it's easier. It's much easier. Right. And Will could attest to this. It's much harder to get students. How can I word this? It is much easier to get students to agree that a chicken has a nature than it is to get them to agree. And that we ought to respect that. Mm-hmm. Than it is for the to get them to agree that they have a nature, and that they ought to respect that. So right? you're doing some baby steps. So we we walk them just up the hierarchy of being. Okay. So if Aristotle's right about that things have a nature, what practical implications does that make? If if agere sequitur esse, if if what I do follows from what is, yeah. Um, if the way in which I act toward the world follows from what the world is, because the world is act, being is an act, um, um, 
and that 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 the thing is sort of full of of intelligibility then uh it, it, like they're quick to agree oh yeah of course i see right i we should we should we should be thinking more richly about how we blah 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 and then you just walk them up tut, 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 yeah. and go okay what about us and then they sort of they see oh well, the logic would be that I need to act according to my own nature. Like, what am I right. as a rational social animal and a desiring animal? What does that mean? What does it mean for me vis-a-vis the good? What does it mean vis-a-vis for me the true, the beautiful, the one? Yeah. And those are harder questions for people to answer. You know, Correct. people avoid asking those questions because there's yes. consequences. Right. You know, it's easy to say, okay, let me just take care of these chickens, you know, in a proper way. But... I mean, that's the gospel, though. That's God saying you need to carry your cross because there's consequences to deciding I'm going to right. live as I was intended. Now, we have to wrap up here. What would, what, what would be your advice to, to people out there that, that, okay, well, Professor McGinley's saying that I need to discover the, the nature of the human person. I have no idea what that is. What would you, what would, what's just the first step? Just give them the, the easiest first step. Is it- oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um. <laughs> no pressure. So I would say, right, I would echo Gaudi Metzpes 22, which John Paul II referenced throughout his papacy. Um, in revealing the love of the Father, Christ reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. Right? If we actually want to know what it means to be human, we have to fix our gaze on Christ, but we have to realize that Christ is bigger than our ideas about him. Right, and mm-hmm. he challenges our assumptions, and he really challenges our American assumptions because mm-hmm. our American assumptions are enlightenment. Um, uh, yeah, there are there they are based in some really fundamental shifts in terms of uh, both both theologically and philosophically, and so we need to wrestle with that, and we need to let him challenge those. And then we need to let we need to realize also that Christ is not only bigger than our, our ideas, but He contains in Himself, without without collapsing the difference. But insofar as Christ is man, right, which He is, He is both God and man, fully both. Then He Himself is a microcosm, who mm-hmm. draws in and through His humanity. The whole world up in and up into the divine life, um, uh, maintaining right. Like theologically, we need all sorts of distinctions and qualifiers. And I'm sure John Mark is listening and going, "Oh, yikes!" <laughs> um, but insofar right as that's the case, all of our any our 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 the way in which the the, the entire cosmos uh, as Colossians says, right, in him all things, right, um, all things are, are, are for him and from him and to him. This sort of uh, Christ as Pantocrator, that, that uh, he contains in himself. Our farm simply participates through our human action in the restoration of all things in Christ himself, in Christ's redeeming all things in himself, right? Um, if we fix our gaze on him 
and we allow our gaze on the world to be fixed by him, then, right, we can love the world rightly. This is why the martyrs, we say, right, in the liturgy, love for the world did not stop them from death, did not deter them from death, mm. right? They loved the world. Like, the, the martyr doesn't go, yes, I'm out, baby. Yeah. No. He loves the world precisely because he's participating in God. He loves the world more than the world loves it. Like, Christ loves the world more than the world loves itself. Yeah, they're not using it properly. Correct. He loves it correctly. Exactly. And that, that's what's upsetting them. Right. And so the farmer, the sort of Catholic farmer, but, but also the Catholic layman in whatever field he's in, and I use field intentionally, is supposed to be recapitulating all things in Christ insofar as his field allows it. And mm. he's supposed to be working for the conversion of his field insofar as the field requires it. My land needs healed from years of enlightenment philosophical damage. Mm. The same goes for any discipline. There are assumptions that need to be brought out and, and transformed. Right? Economics is one of them. This is why John Larravee's work is so important. Um, if we assume that man is a utility-maximizing animal, and by animal we mean machine, certain things necessarily follow. Right. But if we have a different anthropological assumption, different, a different economic system follows. This is what Benedict says in Caritas and Veritate, which is also where he says that the way in which we treat man... Uh, we think we treat the soil leads to a way of treating man and vice versa. Right. Like that, those things, man, anthropology and cosmology stand and fall together. Be so I've seen um, images of Christ as, um, you know, Christ is the keystone or Christ is the center of the spoke of the wheel. Basically what I think you're saying or how I'm taking it is that Christ, the piece of advice, Christ is the center. He's the, he's the, he, in him, you can find the meaning and the correct way to be because he was fully a fully divine and fully man. This is the new Adam where you can go to correct. unlearn all of these things that we've learned that are improper because of philosophy, uh, errant philosophies and so on. This is the place to learn the correct way to be human. And then everything else will be um Un, you know, undone, that's wrong, right. and then re, redone in, right. in the correct way. Yeah, and that takes time and is painful, mm -hmm. like exceedingly painful. It means I can't eat certain things, mm -hmm. right? Um, so it requires a conversion. Like yeah. The only way that this works is conversion. Right. Eating, eating well, I mean, I argue, follows from a, a, a more profound conversion than we normally think conversion is just this sort of, um, now I'm nice to my brother. And I think it's such a good metaphor, the, the farming, because, you know, Jesus says fast and pray. Well, what does fast and pray really mean? Fasting is to detach from something and praying is to attach to God. So you're, you're saying, I mean, it's a great metaphor because in a sense, it's conversion is in a way, stop eating McDonald's, start eating food grown from the ground. You know, we want to replace right. these these lesser things with fuller things. It's not that people can think of the Catholic Church as this deprivation. Oh, I can't have sex anymore. or I can't, you know, drink alcohol all the time. That's not what, you know, the reality is, no, you're, these things are being used improperly. God wants full flourishing. The glory of God is the man or woman fully alive, right? We are, we, 
we got to end our podcast. This has been great talking to you, Steve. Um, thank you so much of for, course, for being pleasure. with us.